Welcome back, Dan. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming back. I can't believe you're actually coming, returning. I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to comment. <laughs> Good evening, Ben. How you doing? Good evening. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah. You? Really? Are you really very well? I'm pretty well. Pretty well. I mean, let's not dig into it too much, but... <laughs> oh, OK, OK, OK. Yeah, yeah. Let's be polite. So, uh, what are we talking about today? Good. Why is Dan here? Oh, uh, well... You <laughs> <laughs> cracked the illusion there. We're going to talk about uh, refugee <laughs> policy. And we have on uh, Dan Sohir... Oh my god, we literally just went through pronouncing his name. <laughs> One day you will get the name right. <laughs> so Hedge. So Hedge. I was joking. I know. Uh, and you are director of Stand for All, uh, the human rights advocacy and support organisation. And you won an award last, last year, didn't you? Yes, yeah, we won a UK Enterprise Award. Well done. Yeah. And uh, we had you on in 2020. It's been a long... A it's long been a while now, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of uh, water under the bridge. It seems a very long time ago, that now, doesn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it is, but it seems like a lifetime for me, anyway. Long, long time. Welcome back, Dan. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming back. I can't believe you're actually coming, returning. I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to comment. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. So, yeah, we're going to talk about refugee policy, Ukraine crisis and our response to it, and uh, touch on the Nationality and Borders Bill. Not be that. Wonderful. So, uh, Dan um, and Matt, hello. Um, hello. Hello. The war in Ukraine has created a refugee crisis. Uh, I think the U- the UN... How many are we looking at of people who have left Ukraine now? Is it around 8 million or something? Um, last night, it was about 3.5 million refugees, but displaced within the country. It's about 10 million, yeah. I think. I just more than doubled the number. Yeah. Uh, and flooding in mostly into the neighbouring countries. Um, I think it's well documented now that we've got a, a lot of Britain's response to it in many ways has been positive uh, diplomatically in providing support but where it falls down quite severely is in providing refuge for for people fleeing a war zone and we're seeing uh, every day it's pretty horrific what's going on and we've not we've not risen to the occasion have we Dan? Not not brilliantly I mean I think the British public have risen to the occasion spectacularly but it shouldn't really be down on the British public necessarily to have to rise quite so much to the occasion. Yeah, and I wrote a while ago, uh, I think it was uh, earlier this month, actually, it's not that long ago, um, about how quite shocking response in in terms of the visas issued. We've been very sluggish. Um, Obviously, other countries, uh, most of of the other EU countries have waived visas, Visas. The EU's, uh, yeah, the EU's waived them and enacted temporary protection, which is the first time they've done that since it was 
put in place. What does that What does that mean? It effectively means that someone they can bring in on a mass scale people for 90 days, no need for asylum, they can work, they can live, they can move around. Lots of different things come into play with temporary protection and it's something that you've historically tried to avoid enacting almost. So for them to do it is quite a major thing. There's complete like open door policy just come in. To all intents and purposes in this circumstance, yes. Where I say in, 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 uh, when, when they come to attempt to uh, get into Britain, they're facing, facing the classic British bureaucracy um, and pages. No. Yes, yes, no. Matt. Uh, <laughs> and pages and the application forms are, are a bit are a nightmare, especially for people whose English isn't their first language, uh, and of you know everything they've been through. Finding they have to fill in this these these forms and and also find find where they've got can actually apply when when they get to, you know some people are getting to Calais and being told to go to uh, centres elsewhere where they've already been you know they've gone through enough and and. There seems to be no sign of us of changing policy there. And so everything we're doing now seems to be just coming, stemming from that, trying to avoid doing what other countries have done. And one of those things is, is as you touched upon, um, the, the British public have shown their compassion through the, the Homes for Ukraine scheme. Uh, and there was an enormous amount of um, applications to that. But today we found out there's only... Only uh, more than twenty thousand visas have been submitted under the under the scheme, and so far the Times uh, sources believes it's that less than two thousand uh, visas have actually been issued. Uh, nine out of ten offers uh, of homes for Ukrainian refugees have yet to be approved. So the scheme's not working, and it's an emergency situation. But we're not we're not showing any kind of urgency. Why do you think it's not working? Is this down to the Home Office? It's. Uh... Partly the Home Office, but also this is the Home for Ukraine scheme is being run through the Leveling Up um, department. And it's partly because they're trying to treat what is essentially an asylum situation as an immigration situation. Two different systems, and it just can't work. I mean, it's, we're seeing that it can't work. It takes time to process visas in this situation, that time isn't there. People are waiting in random countries and it's just not a feasible system at the moment. So why is that? Why has it gone down that route um, rather than uh, treating it like an asylum case? Um, there's the cynical point of view. As soon as you start saying it's asylum, it starts opening up the fact that you need to actually invest and resource the asylum system, which has been historically under-resourced for quite some time. But also it's a way to limit people coming in. We've seen ministers stating that, well, there's a security threat, we need to vet people. Which, yeah, you you could argue is a fair case, but at the weekend they rejected a visa for a four-year-old child because their passport had That's the thing, um, women and children, the men of staying, for the most part, have been asked to stay to fight, and women and children are fleeing. So the security threat surely must be lessened by that. I mean, these are women and children fleeing a war zone. The security threat seems a bit of a red herring, is it not? There's far easier ways if a Russian asset wanted to come into the UK, to come into the UK. I mean, they can just come and look at Salisbury Cathedral spires. 
So <laughs> I mean, they don't have much trouble getting in to 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 do this. They were things. on holiday, Dan. They were on holiday. <laughs> I'm, I'm not making any judgment. Um, <laughs> but no, there's far easier ways for people to come in than going through this whole process. And the process itself is incredibly long-winded. But look, they've reduced the form length now from I think it was 30 pages to 11 pages. But that's still quite a lengthy form if you've just fled a war zone. And shuffling people back and forth between Calais. There was a whole fiasco with Lille of, oh, there's a train which will run direct, and then it turned out the train didn't exist. Um, sending people to Berlin. I think there's been a huge sort of mistake of believing how far places are in the EU, to be honest. Sort of, oh, well, it's in the EU, therefore it's an hour's journey from wherever you are. Um, so start to finish, this has been incredibly badly handled, to be honest, yeah. The classic bureaucratic approach is not thinking of it in a sort of... not thinking of it in a humane way, not thinking of the individuals, you know, so you're thinking about the distance from places, it's thinking about it in a very um, bureaucratic way rather than thinking about these are real people who've already travelled from you know, a war zone and now are being asked to walk or pay for transportation to go elsewhere it's just not thinking of the actual individuals that have to go through this experience do you think there's, there's something to i mean if you've i've seen you said uh, today that that tr- treating uh, asylum as immigration is wrong and there should be two two different systems do you think there's resistance to to treating them uh, uh, as what it is because then we have to look at then people might look at uh, you know situations in other countries whether it's afghans and start thinking well this is actually the same thing. We can start saying, wait a minute, we can see the war and the hell they're going through in Ukraine. And then you can see what they're going through in Afghanistan. People might finally start connect connect the dots and think, well, these are just humans too in the same situation. Why are we treating them differently? Is I there think, any element of that? Yeah, there's a lot of that in that. Uh, if they say this is an asylum situation, then it shows up that, well, hang on, why have we treated other asylum seekers this way? Uh, we've got... Ukrainian citizens who have come through by irregular means, so they haven't got a visa, and they've managed to get to the UK, they're being placed in hotels in the same way that Afghan refugees are. Lap of luxury, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, they're they're gorgeous places. They have only been condemned by, I think, every organisation which deals with this. Um, But, yeah, these people, you know, so it shows up. The floors, because you've got 120,000 people have said we'll open our doors and open our homes to Ukrainian refugees. And they're still placing those who've come without a visa in hotels because otherwise they've got to show that actually here's the flaw in the system. Why are we treating one group separately from a different, from another group? Yes, it's interesting how many applications there have been and the response. Uh, consider it's not, it's, you know, it's no small thing asking people... Uh, to take refugees into their home, it's, uh, yes, there's, there's, it's about compassion, but there's the practicality. It's not, it's not easy, and and it's a, it's a, it can it's a big ask, uh, and and the response has been, has been huge. So it, it seems to me that perhaps because these policies are, are, are tr- they're trying to win votes, they're trying to appeal to their uh, to a certain uh, amount of uh, section of the electorate, and they're think and they're they they're basing. Are they basing this on something that on a sentiment that's out of date perception of the British public? 
Yep, I would agree with that, and I think it's backfired on them. Um, but also, it shows they haven't been watching public opinion. When you talk about refugees, public opinion is overwhelmingly in support of the UK providing more sanctuary and safety for refugees. If you, when you start changing the narrative to illegal and irregular crossings and the channel, then that support drops. So it's, it's a general thing that people follow what they see in the news. And I think what we're seeing is people are seeing in the news, this is happening, we need to help. And the government's not really realised that actually most people aren't that bad and do want to help other people when they're in trouble. So it's backfired on them on that. Yeah, and I guess it becomes a, a, a real thing, doesn't it, rather than something in, in, in theory... Uh, they're seeing the, the, the situation they're in and and there's been some interesting reports with people who have uh, applied to the scheme um, the, the, the slow response and how they dis, the sort of malfunctioning uh, uh, how this scheme isn't working is leaving pe- many people stuck in Ukraine or stuck uh, in limbo in, in neighbouring countries and uh, I saw that um, there was in the Guardian uh, a woman called Samantha Flower applied uh, applied for a 17 year old Ukrainian boy to live with her family in Derbyshire, uh, but said she'd been had nothing but delays and bureaucracy, and the and the child has been forced to remain in Ukraine, and and she has said if he doesn't make out alive, it's because of the red tape that prevented it, and this, this I mean it's a pretty serious serious situation, isn't it? You know. It is. There's something to add to that, though. Uh, there's reports that the Ukrainian government have said that unaccompanied minors can't be placed without their authorization, and ah, I see. that becomes quite complex for fairly sensible reasons, to be honest. Um, you've got mm. families which have been separated. There's a risk of if they were taken to one country, potentially fostered or adopted, it leads to longer-term issues, trafficking issues, and all that sort of thing. So. Right. It's there's a lot of complex stuff going on when it comes to separated children on that. So that's that uh, brings us naturally to the the whole safeguarding aspect of it, which I've seen you've uh, tweeted about uh, and written about. And I was looking earlier about the the checks that need to be done. This is on a government website. Um, so all households receiving guests from Ukraine will receive checks by local councils on the property and the household. Uh, so there'll be visits uh, to check that they're fit for purpose. Um, and if the accommodation is self-contained or only adults without specific vulnerabilities are coming into the property, then the basic DBS checks are undertaken. Um, what's your opinion of the of the safeguarding measures and the, and the checks uh, that have been put on this scheme for, for people who want to want to apply for it? Is it enough? I don't, it's not even close to enough at the moment. Um it's better than it was when it first launched. There was the big thing about light touch checks, which was terrifying for a lot of people in the sector. But even so, local authorities don't have the resources to check everywhere before people come in. So you're still going to see the the idea is that they're checked either before or within 24 hours of them coming in. But the reality is that's not practical. It's, you've still got, if the checks aren't in place, guaranteed before someone comes in, it's a trafficker's dream, quite frankly. I mean, they can set this up. People are sharing their details on social media. 
it's pick and mix. And as soon as someone comes in, how are the local authorities going to be able to check if they've been taken off somewhere else? So there's huge, huge safeguarding issues with this. This is another, um, seems to me like an example of like trying to, uh, trying to be nimble and agile within like a broken system. Um, because if you do want to have people being ch checked before, like before they allow people into their homes, well, how long is that going to take? Well, um, those checks take a long time, don't they? This is why um, you need... Because that process is so crap. Yeah, <laughs> but this is why you need to, it needs to be treated as asylum rather than immigration. Because if it's an asylum situation... We've actually got models in this country for utilising local authorities combined with various different agencies, NGOs, professionals, which works. We've seen it work of providing that safeguarding. When you start doing it as immigration, you avoid having to enact asylum protocols, <clears throat> which means you don't have that multi-agency input. More organisations have been brought in now, but... Originally, very few specialist sector organisations were brought into this. But there's no sign of, the, of the, this. I find it becomes increasingly hard to believe that they will, you know, after after all this time, say actually, you know, this isn't working. We will raise visas. So we're going to be ploughing on through this dysfunctional system, which is just and trying to limit the numbers. Yeah, yeah, they they can't backpedal now on this. It's too much has been invested in it. I hope they do, but. I think it's unlikely that I will. So, that's a natural pause to move on to a, another rather controversial uh, policy, and that's the Nationality and Borders Bill, uh, which is relevant because I think that uh, it's been put under the microscope more and more. I mean, it was already very controversial, but as the refugee crisis in Ukraine has uh, heightened and our response to it has been criticised, I think that this has been... People are looking at this again, and I think maybe even some more opposition to it. Um, as far as I know, the current, current status is it passed through the House of Lords. Uh, Peers tried to strip out some of the more contentious measures, uh, including the move to uh, enable the offshoring of asylum seekers in overseas processing centres, which is, uh, that was around the 22nd of March, this was reported, and that's trying to follow the uh, the Australian model, which uh, oops, which a lot of people in this country have a bit of a hard-on for, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's what, what, What's that, sorry, <clears throat> the Australian model that people have hard-ons yeah, for? They, they, in Australia, they process the asylum seekers offshore in processing centres and little, yes, little right. surrounding islands, and, and, and it's all in the... A lot of um, people, uh, commentators, mostly on the right, um, well, almost entirely on the right, um, believe that they, we should be adopting a, a, that Australian model. Um, it's also very much of the turn the boats back um, school of thought. Um, but this bill's called the. It's been called by Barrack. It's called the. Been dubbed the anti-refugee bill. So in the context of uh, increased public sympathy. Um, uh, due to the Ukraine crisis. Uh, it's interesting to see how this goes, but it seems to be ploughing on regardless. So could you, Dan, give us a little briefing of what the Nationality and Borders Bill is all about, please? So the Nationality and Borders Bill is designed specifically to create, first of all, a two-tier system for refugees. So anybody who doesn't come through a government-approved route 
um, resettlement routes are commonly called. If they identify what's known as irregular means crossing the channel, for example, they become a second tier refugee, which means they're effectively criminalised. The government is talked about offshoring, which we can come to in a second, but is just unworkable. Um, also denies them certain rights. It contravenes one of the key underlying aspects of refugee law in itself. But the idea is that anybody who doesn't come through a sanctioned government resettlement route isn't classed in inverted commas as a genuine refugee. And that's where it comes down to. The idea is it combats traffickers. The problem is that there's a lot of clauses in it which actually really significantly benefit traffickers, such as making it harder for their victims to come forward. Because if they come forward, they become criminalised. So there's all sorts of issues with this. But that's a basic overview. It's to try and... There are, the government's argument is it combats trafficking. Everyone else's argument is it undermines international refugee law and creates a two-tier system. So only those people the government's given a specific route to can gain asylum in the UK. And who are those people that have been given this specific route? It's very limited. We've got several routes, most of which have been either paused or limited during the pandemic for obvious reasons. Um, There's a Syrian resettlement route, for example. But we take... I mean, the UK does take, on average, more people through resettlement routes than other EU countries. That's because other EU countries don't need to have the resettlement routes because people can go there anyway and take far more refugees in general. So they're very specific routes, normally country-specific, which means that someone fleeing persecution from a random point, even though they'd be classed as an asylum seeker and would be a gen- classed as a genuine refugee, wouldn't have that route, so couldn't reach the UK. So is it... I was, I was reading up on it and and like giving it some thought, and it seems to be a, a way of of criminalising some refugees before they even get here. Uh, yeah, making it easier to to refuse refuse them uh, refuse them uh, refugee status and to to take them in. Uh, this is again coming from a similar place where the, the government seems to believe that this the public really want this clamped down on. Um, it seems to be ploughing on regardless. Uh, how, how likely do you think that this is that there's any chance of stopping this? I think, and I think most people in the sector would agree, the bill will pass. Eventually it will pass, unless there is some massively significant change. But... Because it's gone back to the Lords now, Mm. and we're in what's known as ping-pong. So the Lords can either accept or reject what the Commons decide, the Commons can then accept or reject, and that could go on until the next legislative session, um, when the government can just pass it. So unless there's a really significant change, I think most people accept it will pass, but that doesn't mean that we stop trying to show why it shouldn't. That's still necessary. Because you can't, it's not a sort of bill where you can just tweak little bits of it. I mean, there's so much interlinked in it that is, <laughs> I would argue, fundamentally illegal. Um, but most people would argue it's definitely fundamentally inhumane. So, 
legal in the sense that it contravenes uh, international law? It contravenes multiple international laws, mm. um, particularly the Refugee Convention, which... 1951. Yeah, 1951 yeah. UN Convention on the Status of Refugees, and it's 1967 Protocol, which specifically say you cannot penalise someone seeking asylum for their manner of entry into the country. And they are, so long as they have come directly to the country, that's been clarified in various other guidance and rulings, that directly means they can cross other countries. So, give you an idea, if a Ukrainian citizen wanted to, under this law, wanted to come to the UK to be, seek asylum, they couldn't, because there's, there's no direct flights from Ukraine to the UK, so they would have automatically entered another country that the government classes as safe, and therefore this bill would potentially prevent them from seeking asylum in the country. I guess what's worrying uh, is that, yeah, as you said, if it's risking, we're just we're ploughing through regardless of it breaking international law. I mean, Britain really should be a, a leader in this area. And if we go around breaking breaking the rules uh, arbitrarily and resisting uh, our responsibilities. I mean, I've seen it described as um, one of the most anti-refugee... It would make us one of the most anti-refugee countries in the world. Uh, Other countries can just respond in kind and we'd become an example in a very negative sense. Which is Um, very likely to happen. Uh, We're already seeing movement in that. There's a growing sort of... How should I put this? Growing movement to prevent refugees coming into various countries. And it's not just the UK and it's been around the world anyway. I mean, if you look at Japan's refugee policies, it's they're even worse in certain respect. So it's not new, but this would actually formalise it in law and act as a way other countries can go, well, they've done it, we can do it. Not really very good news then all round, is it? <laughs> not, not really, no. It's, it's a bit depressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm, well, how do I round this off? OK, Dan, uh, here's what I'll do. I'm going to say, I know this is a bit of a... Silly exercise, but uh, I've just made you uh, the Prime Minister, huge majority. Um, what would you, what, what should our policy in this be? What's realistically, what, what, or ideally even, um, what, how should we be responding to these crises? How should we be treating refugees? Um, what should we be doing? Yeah. First, first step is recognise the UK has never been a prime destination for refugees. And that's not because people can't come here. It's just people haven't really wanted to, and that's the main reason they come with family ties or language. Mm-hmm. We don't take as many refugees as other people. So we put the millions and millions, and if the Borders Bill passes, that goes up to billions, because offshoring will be about £1.4 billion per year, into investing in local communities so you can develop those communities, benefit everybody, help support businesses, help support people coming off the streets so that you can reduce homelessness. And that, at the same time, means you can then also help refugees because you're developing those communities in parallel so everyone can benefit. You just have to recognise that, you know, most people don't come to the UK. There's other options in other countries for them, so... And I've seen you um, comment on... Refugees we do take in really need to have 
uh, we need to provide some kind of follow-up support for them. Very much so. Um, and what, what, yeah. could you elaborate on that a little bit? Refugees have normally got very highly complex trauma-related needs. It, just imagine you've fled a war zone, you've left everybody you know behind. The trauma that they've gone through is something that most of us can't even begin to accept, understand. That requires quite a lot of resourcing to go into supporting them. It's called trauma-informed care, which is more than the average person the, social, the local authorities and social services will have to deal with. So we need to be training people up to be able to work with them, support them, and provide long-term care. And it, it can't just be a one-off meet once someone's arrived, as we're seeing with the Home Street Grain Scheme, for example. It's got to be long-term supportive care for them. Okay, thank you. Well, you know what? I think that that was all very informative and uh, it's informed me and our listeners, which is interesting because last week, uh, on last on the last episode, we were talking about beavers and the names of beavers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in a big change of... Uh, of, uh, of yeah, actual beavers, actual yeah, beavers. Not, not, that's yeah, not sorry, a euphemism. <laughs> So thank you for, for coming on to help us uh, navigate a, a much far serious, serious well, subject. Thank you for having me on. It's always good to be on. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, Dan? Uh, <laughs> anything else you'd like to add? I, I'm intrigued by last week's discussion, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was about re- rewilding. We, we offered our ill-informed opinions on rewilding and beavers mm. being reintroduced into Britain. Um, the main the main point was that they yeah they'd reintroduced the beavers and they'd named the two beavers Justin Beaver and Sigourney Beaver. Yeah. And I just that's just that criminal. Was, that's that's <laughs> that's great. It's fantastic. I mean, it's exactly what we want to hear. <laughs> so this week we're dealing with slightly different type of news. Thanks for helping mm. us through it. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, cheers, Dan. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to be on. Dan Sohage of Stand For All, doing fantastic work. Thank you for everything <laughs> you've been doing, and uh, thank you for coming on and, and uh, enlightening us all. So that was Dan. Yes. Do you want to say anything about Dan? It was we, We're not actually sure, are we, where his recording has cut off because he was recording on his phone and then at one point he turned to us and was like, oh, yeah, I think it just cut off the last 30 seconds. And But I haven't looked at it for a while. Um, so, yeah, so we could have just we'll got see. the first few sentences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really have no idea. Um, but I'm sure be, it was a very good interview, a very interesting insight from Dan. Yeah. It's always good to have him on. I say it's always good to have him on. It's the second time he's been yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was, uh, it was good the first time. And uh, yeah. Yeah, both of the times he was good. Yes. Get a bit more gravitas to our tackling of that subject. I'm glad he agreed to do it. Yeah. How, how did you feel about your own performance? I feel that I proved that just apart from mispronouncing his name, because my brain was like, you know, just, I think there's something in my brain going, just do it wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Like you did last time. Anyways, are you, are, you, are you happy? So, what, what's your? Um, are you happy with your performance? You're going to give yourself a, a star a star rating out of fives. Five. Let's give it a four. Five out of five. I'll give it a four. Arrogance. Four. Okay. So, I'll a give good four. Give it a three. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite prepared. I had it all, you know, and it, we managed to keep it quite tight for a change. It wasn't just a sprawling conversation, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We had, we had Chris on, and I was like, oh, hi, thanks for coming on, and I don't know what we're here to talk about, so let's just have a rambly conversation. Anyway, those things work sometimes, and, but that was more, it was more of an interview, wasn't it? So yeah. work, work, I mean, I'm not a professional interviewer, for Christ's sake, but... A three is better than a two, is all I'm saying. Three is better than a two. Yeah, thanks. Um, so what, so some other shit? Have you got any other yeah, shit Yeah, should we just do a little, now for something completely different type of thing? Yeah, why not, why not? Okay, other shit, hmm... Uh, what's going on? Coda won Best um, Film at the Oscars. Have not deaf seen film. it. Have not seen Haven't it. seen it. No, I think it's a deaf film. That's all I want to say about the Oscars, <laughs> apart from, get my wife out your mouth! <laughs> <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah, well, I mean, this could be out of date by the time it goes out, but I mean, you said you didn't it want to be, talk yeah. about it. Sorry, sorry. You didn't say you didn't yeah. want to just as long as my wife isn't in your mouth, then that's fine. Um, I haven't really got, I've got a lot of... Uh, I've started writing things down now when things occur to me. Okay. This is part right. of my pick one of them. More preparing for for uh, for for these these recordings. So I wanted to ask you, did you, Matt, partake in youthful shoplifting? Youthful shoplifting, yes, I did a lot actually. Oh, I did you, man. <clears throat> yeah, but, yeah. A lot of chocolate bars. Yeah. A lot of chocolate bars. I mean, I, I I grew up next to a like the village shop. Mm. I grew up in a very small village, um, not many shops, but I lived next to the the shop, and we used to go in there and yeah, just uh, that would be the game, just trying to steal stuff. Yes, yeah. similar here. I am um, Mars bars and yeah. I because I, I I was thinking the reason I thought of this is I was actually taking my son to the very same shop, which was my frequent victim when I was. I mean, I was below the age of this below the age of you know primary school age. I was when I was doing it. Uh, and um, yeah, it's very distinct. Obviously, it's a different shop now, but same location. So, bringing back memories. I never thought back then one day I'll be bringing my son into this place in which mm. I steal from. It's always we did it. It was kind of uh, yeah, smash and grab. Well, not smash. There was no smashing, but you know, in and out yeah. sort of thing. They had for a while a quite an advised uh, the counter. Uh, was the, from the door it was there was a like a slush puppy machine or something. On the end of it, it slightly mm-hmm. obscured the view of where the nice. free, the freezer was, the chest freezer full of ice lads. We used to just grab them and just. But I mean, I don't know. I never got banned from the place, but we would just go in. Mm. And the funny thing is, I remember the, you could just literally walk just around the corner, ten seconds run, and then there's a the, what is a deli now? I don't know what it used to be, but there's a doorway you could go in. We used to just run around there and go in the doorway and then just eat whatever we'd nick there. So, I mean, they wouldn't have had to come go far to, mm, to find yeah. But we just always did that. It's almost like you want to get caught, isn't it? Well, maybe. Maybe it's a deep it's psychological... The game. It's the thrill. Yeah, yeah. I just used to do that quite a lot as well. So, but I mean, I've yeah. never, never, never got my ear pulled for it. No, yeah, I used to do it a lot. Um, there'd always be that one friend who took it too far. Yeah, there's always someone who takes it um, too far. I remember, yeah, going to, like, a, a, a virgin megastore and one one time in, in like a in like a a shopping center, and I can't remember where it was. Anyway, um, and coming out of the the, the shopping, coming out of Virgin Megastore, and my mate like turned to me and had he had Buster Rhymes' most recent <laughs> album, Buster Rhymes, 
Um, and he had it. He had it. He's taken it in his coat, and I was like, "Fuck, man, that is one step too far." He's taken a whole album. And how old are you there? Because that's obviously a bit. With like a, you know the tracking thing on it. I don't know how he got it out of there. Must have been. A... I was like, te- I was terrified. How, how old God, are we talking? It's Virgin Megastore. It's not just like local. Okay. News agents. And how old are you? How old were you then? That's a bit older. I mean, to be fair, probably a bit older then. So I was about probably about fourteen. <sighs> Well, I mean, talking Virgin Megastore is actually where I was caught shoplifting. Oh, here we go. You're good. Yeah, I was 19. <laughs> so, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you're the friend who took it too far. But 19, it's like that's like uh, you're reckless. And, oh, I was incredibly, well, I was yeah, particularly reckless when yeah, I was 19. Yeah. And a bit of a... I was play, playing this, you know, a bit of a scummer. I mean, I didn't need to be yeah, stealing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just yeah. stealing yeah, for the thrill. The... I didn't need... It's not like I... I'm not stealing CDs as well. It's not like I was... I'm so hungry, I need these CDs to sell mm. for my, my family. Stealing for the identity. Um, for the, to re- reinforce your identity as a drug-addled... Yes. Um, ...wannabe rock star. Yeah, and um, I remember... Uh, well, technically, I am still banned from all of the shops uh, in Hull mm. because... It was some all kind of, shops. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a big scheme that they were all signed up for, and at the time, it was very oh. dramatic. I was given a piece of paper that said, "You are, you know, no, you are banned from all the shops under the scheme." It was most of the shops in Hull. It was meant to be a lifetime ban. Obviously, pretty hard to enforce. Yeah. <laughs> what did you steal? Um, I can't specifically remember what CDs. I, was. I used to just take CDs and and then have to give them to people and maybe keep some amount. I mean, it's a bit like Robin Hood if you think about it, really. Mm. Taking yep. CDs from the rich to give to the poor, giving music to the masses, or just all my other scummy mm. drug-addled friends. Such a pretentious crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to have a coat like so Pete Doherty, like do do do, skipping along the road, <laughs> handing out CDs. <laughs> it's pretty pathetic all round. Really. I had a coat. I had this blank jacket on, and and it, at that point it had got a bit of a hole in the back, and I used to like start storing things in there to take. Uh, and it's like dressed like a tramp, you know. By that point, I mean I'd I'd lived with my dad and stepmom for quite a while, and so it was not in a I was in a reasonably privileged uh, situation. I've got somebody knocking on the door. Go away. <laughs> okay, well that's uh, different. <laughs> <laughs> now a, a four-year-old in the background grinning at me. Uh, What's he playing? He's watching. Uh, he's watching a program called Lava, which is about Lava. these weird little little creatures that basically fart a lot. Finds it very amusing. Mm. Makes him laugh. So, out loud. Sounds hilarious. Yeah. So I was it? yes. Uh, I had taken CDs and I'd stuffed them all in the back. But mm-hmm. this was, you know, this was an upgrade from small. A foolish upgrade from the small like corner shops and uh, little spas and stuff like that. This is a, a Virgin Megastore with CCTV yeah. cameras in a shopping centre with security guards. Mm. And so they they clocked me and I was like, Oof. put them all, you know, got rid of the CDs, started going, thinking I could get out of the situation. No. Ran. I didn't run. I was walking mm. quite urgently. And then I was running in pursuit, with security guards in pursuit. <laughs> who uh, tackled me to the ground and <laughs> and put my arm around my back. So all the CDs go smashing uh, all over the yeah, floor. Yeah, uh, it's quite dramatic. And, uh, yeah, basically citizens arrest style taken out and marched out 
And I was kind of having a laugh with the the guards in the end because it was just a bit of an absurd situation. And it it wasn't, like, aggressive or anything. They were just like, you know, obviously, get out. (laughs) And I wasn't, luckily, wasn't prosecuted or anything. So I wasn't given a ridiculous, unnecessary criminal record just for my silly, silly, who look how rebellious I am. I'm so cool. It would have been deserve it. Deserve it. It would have, it would have, yes. Yeah, Uh, but, uh, yeah. And then wasn't able to go into the area for a while. Left it a while, but uh, yeah, silly, silly. Boy. I mean, who's had the last laugh now, eh? I mean, where's Virgin Megastore now? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, it's long gone, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's yeah. showing our age a bit there. Virgin Megastore. Yeah. Virgin. I Megastore. don't know if like if I spoke to people who were a bit younger at work, they'd have ever remember. I mean, it's a long time ago that's gone, isn't it? Yeah. And CDs, stealing CDs. And it became Zavi, didn't it? It was Zavi for a bit. Yeah. And um. Then that one. I remember as well, and this is really this really irritates me. Uh, they, they gave me like a piece of paper, like that said I was banned, and I think I put it on my wall for a bit, like it's some kind of badge of honour. Yeah. So like, fucking hell! Yeah, real clever, real clever. Mate. Other other people your age are going to university and cracking on with their lives, and you're pissing away your youthful years. I mean, it was years and years after that that I was working crappy jobs, and I haven't got any kind of pension that I've had for the last few years because I was. I was spending so long thinking I was really cool and I was just going to... Life was just going to fall in my lap. So there you go. (laughs) What a knobber. Oh, Oh, youth. Yeah, long gone. Long, long lost youth. Don't miss it, really. Um, Okay, so should we stop there? Yeah, I think we've done enough. Thank you for listening, everybody. Again, if you want to send us any abuse... Or comment on the podcast, or let us know anything. If you want me to read out any jokes in my <laughs> inimitable style, yeah, it's uh, the Great Unraveling Podcast at gmail dot com. Have you got any other shit that you'd like us to discuss? Have you got any questions for us that you'd like us to discuss? Give us some fuel, fuel for yeah, the other not? shit fire. That would be helpful. Yeah, because we struggle yeah. sometimes. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye. See you later.